Revelation chapter 19 is where we're going to begin one final time, at least in this large section that we've been looking at in Revelation, which I've been calling the fall of Babylon and the exaltation of the bride. We've been back and forth in this two and a half chapter text looking at various ideas, and we come and we'll center our thoughts on verse 10 of chapter 19 this morning before next week, Lord willing, moving on. In this section that we've been looking at, Babylon, this wicked governing influence in the earth during the days of the tribulation is depicted in these verses, as we've seen, as this great immoral prostitute riding the beast, the Antichrist, while the people of God are depicted as a glorious bride, the bride of the Lamb, clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, representing righteous acts of obedience. There's a contrast here. And in these chapters, this Babylon with its agenda to lead all the earth away from Christ and to embrace the things of this world, drunk with the blood of Jesus' witnesses, is brought down to swift and utter ruin, while the bride is invited to the marriage supper to live forever in the immediate presence of the Redeemer. And our focus in these chapters has been on how the Lord appears to want us to respond to all of these dramatic events, this amazing vision John has, so that the text by our response can minister to us the way the Lord intended. So we've seen over the last several weeks that the Lord wants us to be wise. This calls for a mind of wisdom, 17.9 says. We need to be wise about what we're reading and wise about our time and know how to draw the right inferences and conclusions about how we should wisely live. And we've also seen that the Lord wants us to be warned. Revelation 18.4 says that we should flee the culture of Babylon. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Even if we despise the sin and affluence of Babylon and Babylonian culture, that we can still become infected by that culture. Our own hearts can be drawn away from pure devotion to Christ, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 11. And so he says, get out. He warns us, though you're a part of it, don't become like it. And it also tells us that the Lord desires that we should be assured, assured of God's control, assured of the fact that he will judge wickedness and injustice in the world as he promised, and that he will vindicate the righteous. And last week, we saw that the Lord desires that we be joyful, that we be happy, that we have a smile on our face, if I can put it that way. Do you know, if you just really have the joy of the Lord living in our culture, it sets you apart from a lot of people right now who are just depressed or angry or bitter at something. Joy is a testimony of God's goodness and grace in our lives. And there's a lot of joy going on in these chapters, even though there's a lot of judgment as well. Not because we look around at what's happening and we see what's, what's bad in the world. In fact, whenever a news alert pops up on my iPhone, 
I hear that, that little ding or that, that noise, and it wants you to look and see what the news report is. I sort of cringe, and sometimes I don't look at it because I've, I've sort of grown gun-shy, if you know what I mean. I, I wonder, what terrible news are we going to read about next? But that's not what we're rejoicing in. We're, we're never told to rejoice in the pain of the trial. We're rejoicing in the Lord today because of the promises of what those trials will bring that you and I and all who know Christ will finally be standing with him on that great wedding day of the bride and the lamb. Now, this morning, all these ideas, all what we've been seeing here in these chapters should cause us to have another overarching response, and I think it's the most important response. And it comes right from the text, and it is this, worship God. Worship God. That's exactly what we see in chapter 19. If you'll start the reading with me here in verse 1, John says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Let us praise Yah, or let us praise Yahweh. That's the Hebrew there. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures whom we met in chapters 4 and 5 fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage, uh, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, at this point, before we read verse 10, John is so overwhelmed by the scene. He has witnessed the great destruction of this Babylon. And he has been listening to these mighty voices in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! 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 I said it four times because it's four times in the text. He's heard these, and it says that the, the sound is so great, it's like several peals of thunder. You might have heard thunder this weekend as the thunderstorms rolled in. Some of those are pretty loud. Imagine heaping them up together and hearing them all at once. This is the deafening sound of praise of the Lord reigning, which we're going to read about as we continue to read chapter 19 next week. And John throws himself at the feet of this angel who has been guiding him, showing him these visions for the last couple of chapters. So he says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The Apostle John, 
in his astonishment, overcome with emotion, commits a fundamental error of judgment. He falls down at the feet of this angel for the purpose of worshiping him. The word worship here literally means to go down on one knee, to bow in awe, in deep reverence. And John is wrong to do this to the angel. For if there is one idea in all of history that finds itself at the center of God's relationship with humankind, it is just like Jesus himself says to Satan in the wilderness, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. That's why the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. It's the reason God declares in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory, I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other God. So what, when John falls at the angel's feet, the angel rightly rejects horame. That's what he says, actually. Horame. I don't know that the translation actually captures the angel's emotional response. It says, you must not do that. That's a little cumbersome, actually. It's only two words in Greek, and it misses, I think, the emotion of it. A closer translation in English might be, stop it. Cut it out. Don't do that. Horame. You know, it would be so helpful to us if the objects of our worship that we keep going back to besides God would cry out to us when we bow to them, Harame, stop that. Don't do that. Don't you think that would be helpful? The moment when you've admired yourself in the mirror just a little too long, wouldn't it be great if the mirror cried out, Harame, stop it. Worship God. Or that moment you devote too much time and attention to some activity that will make no difference whatsoever in eternity? Wouldn't it be helpful if whatever it is you're invested in jumped up and said, no, God is the highest object of time and attention. Give your worship to him. Or even for some of us, when we begin to love a good thing too much, an ideal or a lifestyle or a ministry or a person so we become consumed with the gift of God rather than God himself. Wouldn't it be so edifying to us if whatever it is we are starting to love more than God would jump up and say, Harame, out of bounds, that's not right. Do you think that John was planning to worship this angel, that he wanted to do this? Do you think he knew what he was doing? I've meditated on this this week quite often. And, you know, I don't think he really intends to worship the angel necessarily. It seems that he becomes emotional and forgets himself. He's caught up in the moment. He was probably ashamed of himself afterwards. And in fact, I, I imagine there's probably a bit of awkward silence after the angel says, get up, don't do that. And he you know, kind of stands up and brushes himself off and kind of smiles at the angel. Like, sorry, you know. I mean, if somebody fell down and worshiped you afterwards, maybe some of you would enjoy that. But others would be like, no, 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 that's, I'm not the right one. I'm just kidding about that. I, I, I'm, I'm not the one we should worship. John had allowed his affections to be swept away with the wonderment of all he was seeing and all he was hoping for. And he began to worship the angel as the messenger of wonder. Do we intend to worship something other than God? I mean, why do we worship someone other than God? 
when we do. I, I think it's due to a similar reason that John worships someone else here. We allow something we think is wonderful to capture our imagination and our affections are pulled away after it. We try to focus our attention on God, but lesser loves sometimes come flooding in like a tsunami and our affections are sucked away from God. And in that moment, we forget who God is and therefore who we are and our relationship with him. So notice that what the angel does in this passage is remind John who God is and who John is. And I would submit to you this morning that when we learn to see God consistently the way the angel sees God, we will be much more focused and consistent in our worship. So the angel guides John's worship back to the right object by confronting him with reality. I think there are at least two realities that he points to, this angel. What are those realities? Well, the first one is this. God is the only object of worship which means that we are his servants. God is the only object of worship. We've been talking about that already, but let's, let's make this point explicit. Let's look ben, uh, back again at the text, starting in verse 10. He says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant of God. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now, I think it's striking that this angel calls John a fellow servant. When we think of the angels, I think we tend to have this imagination of the kind of service given to them that is unique to them because they are so amazing and so powerful. They're, they're not the cutesy little angels with fluffy white wings that you see sometimes in the, in the art or the painting. Okay, if an angel really showed up in his power and glory here, we'd probably all hit the floor so hard we'd kill ourselves, all right? They're, they are amazing spirit beings in the Bible. No one on earth could do what they do. The angel that John is talking to is probably the same one from chapter 17, who carried John away to see the vision of the prostitute Babylon and her government and her fall. We, we haven't seen any other angel talking to him in these chapters, and, and it refers here to the angel. So it's probably the same one from chapter 17. This is one of the angels, if we read earlier, in, in, if we go back to the earlier part of Revelation, this is one of the angels who had the seven bowls of God's wrath, one of the seven bowls that in, in chapter 16. And in chapter 15, we see him with the other six angels coming out of the sanctuary of Almighty God, the heavenly temple. Each angel clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And they all are given this bowl of the wrath of God from one of the four living creatures. And in chapter 16, they pour out these bowls of wrath on the earth in this devastating judgment. This is a powerful angel. But think of how many angels we've encountered already in Revelation. I, I really thought this week I should have been calling more attention to the fact that we're seeing angels. In every chapter, in one way or another, an angel is mentioned. In fact, Revelation refers to angels or an angel 75 times in the book. That's over 50 times more than any other book in the Bible. You want to talk about angels, look at angels, go to the book of Revelation. John spends much of his time in Revelation standing in awe of them. 
In chapter 5, he describes the voices of angels praising God around his throne. And he says, they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. We see them throughout the book of Revelation performing specific actions in the heavenly temple. We see seven of them blowing trumpets to announce the judgment of God. In chapter 10, we meet an angel that is so magnificent, John describes him as coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, with a face shining as the sun, his legs like pillar of fire. He's so large that he has to stand on the planet with one foot on the sea and the other foot on the land. And his voice, John says, was like a lion roaring. And we're going to meet an angel in the next chapter, chapter 20, who is so powerful, he will come down from heaven with a great chain and wrap it around the dragon, Satan himself, and pull him down to the abyss and chain him there for a thousand years. You mean Satan could be bound at any time so that he can no longer do his devious work in the world? Yes, God has him as we've seen so many times. He has him under complete control. He has him on a leash. In fact, when it comes time for Satan to be bound, none of the persons of the Godhead have to lift a finger. They just send one of the angels, grab Satan, bind him, and put him in the bottomless pit. Maybe we can cut John a little slack then for bowing to this magnificent spirit being who has shown him all these wonders, but the angel knows better. He says, no, don't do that. He says, I am your fellow servant. You see that there? In, I have the ESV here on the screen, but you see the way it translates this? I am a fellow servant with you. And, and, and that's a, a good translation. But again, this is the second time. It doesn't really do full justice to the original text. The angel literally says, I am a fellow servant, a with servant. I am a fellow servant of you. And, and that of you is a really important distinction in the Greek text. It indicates a relationship that they share. You normally only use this if you're talking about blood relatives or maybe relatives in the family of God. He says, I am a fellow servant of you. We're related. The angel is saying, we are in the same fraternity. Yes, I am a created spirit being given these powerful abilities that go beyond fallen human power, at least at this time. But when it comes to the most important distinction in the world, the most important distinction in human history, I am no different than you are, John. You and I and other human brothers who know God, we are, both of us, merely servants of the one who created us. And together, we serve him. We have different tasks, but we're all serving the same God. You don't bow to me. We bow to him. It's a remarkable reality that makes our imagination soar to think that we are in the company of angels, that we share a relationship with them as fellow servants. I don't know about you, when you think about that, you think, wow, my, my service is, I, I, that's pretty good. I mean, it's like, you know, having really nice houses go up in your neighborhood. You, your own value kind of goes up, you know what I'm saying, of, of your house. And, and, and when you realize you've got angels you're serving alongside of, that, that really makes you think a little different about your service to God. But really, all the angel is doing here is reminding us that we should already be in awe, that we serve a God that has called us and given us ability to be his servants. And as God's servants, our highest honor and praise and worship go to him.
He is one servant reminding a fellow servant to turn his energy of humble praise and awe toward the right object, to bow the knee in the right direction. And to worship God is to serve God. When we bow before God, we are saying, God, I love you. God, I stand in awe of you. In awe of your power and your glory and your goodness and your wisdom and your beauty and your truth. I am here to obey your will. Worship may begin with fear and reverence as we respond to the reality of who God is, but true worship produces obedience. That's what service is. No genuine subject comes before a great king making a show of honor and respect and then goes his way ignoring the king's desires so he can fulfill his own desires. That doesn't happen. Which means we don't come together with our fellow servants, say on a Sunday morning like this, bowing before the throne of God together, but then go our way ignoring what is going on that God wants us to do and and fulfilling our own will instead. Worship and service go hand in hand. If you don't really mean the one, you can't mean the other also. So this angel is instructing John the apostle, but I think he's also instructing us. We who know Christ, we are who are in this fraternity, we are in the brotherhood of service to God with this angel. And our highest calling is to worship God alone and to be his humble service. It does not, it it means that if, if you are not in the habit already, you begin every day saying, Lord, what is it that you want me to do today? What do you want? What is your will? I am your servant, and my highest will today is not maybe what I have in my mind that I think I'm going to do, but if you change something and you want me to do something else, that is my desire. That is my highest calling. This is what this powerful angel says to John in order to guide his worship back to the right object. But there's one other reality this morning that I think we can see in this text that the angel uses to put John back on the right track, to put his heart, to put his focus, put his worship back on the right track. Not only is God the only object of worship making us his servants, but also the angel indicates that God is the only author of truth, which means that we are his witnesses. Now, in order for me to explain why I phrased it this way, I want you to look back at the text again, starting with the end of verse 9. At the end of that verse, notice the angel summarizes this wonderful description of the promise of the marriage supper of the Lamb by affirming for John, these are the true words of God. And that must have been this dramatic climax at all that, God, that John had saw because that's when he falls on his face at the angel's feet and starts to worship him. In other words, God is the author of everything John has seen. It is his word, not the angels. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve the worship. The angel is just the messenger. This is the word of God. God is making this promise. So in verse 10, when John is overwhelmed by these true words and begins to worship the angel, the angel says, cut it out. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to, notice, the testimony of Jesus. That is, the witness about Jesus. In fact, I'll put it on the screen here, but if you go all the way back to the opening words of the book of Revelation, I'm I'm talking verses 1 and 2, which nobody can remember at this point when we started that, right? Right? Verses 1 and 2, 
of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this whole prophecy is the revelation about Jesus Christ. He's the subject of it. That's what that means. Which God gave to him. God himself gave his son these words. Jesus didn't say to the father, you know, I want to tell them what's going to happen in the end. They're starting to get discouraged. God recognized this and gave to his son this revelation to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He, that is Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, just like we're seeing here in chapter 19, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, the witness of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's going to do, even to all that he saw. The whole revelation we must bear in mind is a revelation about Jesus Christ. These two verses tell us what is going down in the whole book. And in fact, we won't take time to look there yet, but at the very end of Revelation, Jesus reminds John, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. So this idea of what's happening, why this revelation is coming, is at the beginning of the book, and it's frame, it, it frames it, it bookends it by putting it again at the end of the book, just a few verses from the end. So what defines a fellow servant of God is the fact that he or she holds to divinely revealed truth about the Son of God and bears witness to that truth. Not only are we fellow servants with angels, we are fellow witnesses with angels. And we are to worship exclusively the ultimate revealer of that truth that we proclaim. And John seems to make this point too, because if we go back to verse 10, right after the angel says, worship God, you see that there? It seems to be where the angel's voice ends. And then it is John likely who adds a little clarification. We don't have quotation marks in the Greek text, but this seems to be what's going on. The angel ends and John adds this little bit of clarification. The angel says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who told to the testimony of Jesus, notice, the testimony about Jesus. So John explains, for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, or as he says it, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. Does that sentence confuse anyone? Well, if it confuses you, you can relax. It confuses a lot of commentators also, and they admit it. But this sentence, I think, only strikes us as odd because if we were to say what John is saying here, we would probably say it the other way around. We would say the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Or we might put it this way, the essence of prophecy. What's going on here? All that we are reading of in Revelation is a witness to Jesus, the Son of God. Take all of the amazing, indescribable, otherworldly sights and sound that John has seen that that sometimes we note it's difficult for him to put into words. He's struggling to explain what he's seeing all these visions he's had that lead him to mistakenly worship the angel. They are all about the son. He is the focus. And therefore, he with the father and the spirit is our object of worship. This is about Jesus. This is about him. And just as our realization of God 
as the only object of worship reminds us that we are his servants, our realization of God as the only author of truth behooves us. It, it makes it incumbent upon us that we are his witnesses. That's what defines us. We are witnesses to the truth. Truth and worship go hand in hand. They go together. Remember what Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, 24? God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In fact, both our service and our witness are defined by, they're driven by a desire to know and proclaim what is true. And that's what makes you and me, if you know God, if you love Jesus Christ, that's what makes, that's what makes you and me unpopular in a world, in a nation that denies truth, where truth is trying to be shoved out from almost every sector of society. You know, Paul describes a world of people who will not worship God in this text that Brother Brian referred to in his prayer. It's a perfect application of this. I, I just pulled out a, a couple of the, the statements about truth here in Romans 1. And you can put these together and you see that, first of all, he describes them as those who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. They hold it down. They don't want it out. And as those who exchange the truth, about God for a lie. They suppress the truth, they exchange the truth for a lie. And thirdly, it says they worship and serve what is created rather than the creator. You see how a world without Christ is described here? It's a world where truth is suppressed, purposefully held down, where lies are exalted, and where anything but God is okay to worship. Anything but God. In fact, Pick any religion you want. We won't pick on you at all. But if you say you believe in Jesus Christ, then, then you've got some problems with this culture. The age of time that we call the tribulation period that we've been reading about in our study of Revelation is an expression of these three expressions of rebellion against the creator. Truth suppressing, lie exalting, creature worshiping. It's run amok in the period that we're reading about in Revelation. But it also defines our world today, and sadly, it's defining more and more our country today. The United States of America is now 246 years old tomorrow. And we are far from a perfect nation. Anyone would admit that, but we have a godly heritage in the history of our country. I, I know there's a big debate. Are, were we ever a Christian nation? There's a lot of deism going on at the beginning of the country. There, there are a lot of different competing ideas. John Locke's philosophy is alive and well in the, in, the, in, the, in the inception of our nation. It's coming out now more than any other time. But shove that all aside, we have men and women who really served God and loved him in our country. We have a godly heritage embedded in the country, a heritage of men and women who would probably have thought it unthinkable that people would in mass espouse some of the beliefs that are being taught and even put into our laws today. I think that the recent polemic over abortion rights is just one example. It's just the latest iteration of this. And, and if we take one of these iterations and look at it really carefully, we can see exactly the kind of thing that's going on in Romans 1. Think about what Paul says in Romans 1 against this particular debate that is raging right now in the U.S. One, there are people suppressing truth about life in the womb, trying to hold down what God has said in his word. People who 
protest loudly outside of Christian women's centers in order to intimidate those who serve in the centers and those who may find the truth there in order to squelch the voice of truth, to drown it out so that it's not heard. And they protest on Capitol Hill and outside state houses. They lobby for their agenda. They are fierce. They're scary. And I know that sometimes we might want to join David in precatory prayers against them as we read in the Psalms, you know. But I also, we have, we have to realize too that Paul says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We should, we should be in sympathy for these people. They don't know the truth. Their, their end, if they don't turn to Christ, is described for us at the end of Revelation 20. And it is the most terrible passage, the most horrifying passage in all the word of God where people are actually brought back to life for only one purpose, to be condemned forever to the lake of fire. Our hearts should pity them. It should make us more uh, firm about the truth. At the same time, these who suppress the truth exalt the lie that we belong to no one but ourselves that we have freedom over our own bodies to make our own decisions. We've heard it so often. My body, my choice. When in fact the word of God says you are not your own. You are owned by someone else. You don't own you. And that simple truth, you are not your own, stands in utter contrast to the lie that is being promoted in the world, that you are your own person, that you can and should create your own identity that you can do whatever you need to do to find happiness for yourself. And by the way, that can't be done. You were not created for that. You do not understand yourself or your world well enough to make those kinds of decisions. None of us can. So it is no wonder then that those who are clamoring the loudest for our rights over our bodies appear to be the most bitter and unhappy people you've ever met. They do not know what true peace and freedom are because they refuse to acknowledge who they belong to. And what that means. But if you simply process your life from the truth that you were created by God, owned by God, put here to bring glory to God, then everything you do in life and every decision you make will be like day as opposed to night when compared to the worldview that appears to be winning the day in America. But not only is truth being suppressed and not only are lies being exalted, but God is not being worshiped. Instead, those who suppress the truth are worshiping themselves because their choice over their lives is what matters. And I want to be charitable again. There are thousands of men and women who are infected by the prevailing ideology of the pro-choice movement, who are kind to people who don't care to be involved in the public demonstration or protest. They may have strong opinions. They may believe one way or the other, but they're just trying to live their lives, but they're lost but you also see the vitriol and the intense hatred for those who would threaten the lie of the right to possess our own bodies with the truth that we are owned by God because taking control of their bodies and not, uh, and, and not resting until other people see it the way they see it. This is their God. And you can see then what happens when you try to take a person's God away. It is not a pretty picture so you and I, as fellow witnesses of the truth, we have an important and eager responsibility. No, really, we have an important and an eager responsibility. We know the truth. Not only to worship God and his servants, as his servants, but also to hold forth the truth as his witnesses. We must model it in our families. 
We must be willing to engage in ideas in the marketplace. We must be willing to confront error with truth lovingly and graciously and yet confront with the truth. I can't think of any better way to celebrate our country's freedom and the heritage God has given to us in this nation than to commit ourselves, to make sure we are committed to be worshipers of God only as his servants and truth bearers of what God has spoken as his witnesses. Father, we thank you.